Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Changing Faith Podcast. I hope you are doing well in the midst of this season and that you're doing well in the midst of this year that uh, has been called unprecedented and surreal and difficult, really, for many of us. As we begin today, I want to say thank you. I want to say thank you to those of you who continue to listen to and support the podcast. It really does mean a lot uh, your words of encouragement, the fact that you're even listening, um, that, that really means more than you know. So I just want to say thank you. Um, continue to share it on your social media channels as you have done. Continue to review it on iTunes and Podbean. Uh, it really does mean a lot. So let me begin by saying a genuine thank you to the way that you've supported me and encouraged me uh, as I've continued to make this podcast so today's episode, we're going to talk about nonviolence. Now, it seems appropriate in one way because we're in a time that is fueled by so much violence and anger and hatred and vitriol. And last week, I was in a conversation with my friend and fellow pastor, Becca Stewart, about the idea of nonviolence. And our conversation um, just, it really got my wheels turning. And so I began digging back through different books and materials that I've read over the years, um, sermons that I've preached, blogs and articles that I've written. And I found that my first sermon about nonviolence was in 2006. And then I found blogs from 2009, and I found articles that I've written that are somewhere in the neighborhood of like seven, eight years old. And then I realized I've never actually talked about this on the podcast. And so I, I began creating something, and it grew and grew, and I got this full head of steam, and I realized if I go for this in one podcast, it's going to be more than 100 minutes long. So now it's two parts. This is part one, and the second part will follow next week, actually, November 17. So typically, the podcast release every other week. This will be two weeks in a row for the first time ever in the history of the Changing Faith podcast, which really is not that big of a deal. Uh, but today... Part one, one thing that I find fascinating about nonviolence is, well, there's a lot of things, but this, this is just one, is any time that I have written about it, preached about it, or spoken publicly about it, and now record a podcast about it, the responses that nonviolence elicit are, they're incredibly strong, I'll say it that way. And by strong, I mean sometimes unkind often cynical and skeptical, um, and on the whole, not very positive. Some people think when it comes to um, nonviolence, yeah, sure, it sounds nice, but there's no way it could ever work. It's like unicorns, right? They're fun to talk about, but they're not real. Some people get really defensive. One example was a pastor who blogged about an article that I wrote when I expressed the virtue of nonviolence, and he took it apart piece by piece, and retorted by quoting St. Augustine, who's known for his just war theory, and talked about me being wrong. He then went on to talk about how Jesus and his vision was not for us here and now in real time, and how Jesus' vision was for another world. It was fascinating. I received angry emails, um, emails with earnest questions, emails dismissing me as naive, and sometimes even being dim-witted after sermons about nonviolence. I've had people come up and be angry with me after I've preached about nonviolence. And in all of this, what I've learned is this idea does something to us. This idea works us in a way other things don't. And when it does, it's like many of us don't know what to, to make of it. 
And it may just be that the reason for this is that the idea of nonviolence is so foreign to us in the United States of America, so much so that in the English language, we actually don't have a word for nonviolence. All we can do is have the word violence and place the negative prefix non before it. So what we're saying it is, is, well, it's not violence, but it doesn't describe or get at what nonviolence is. It just says, well, it's not violence. And so today I want to explore this idea together and I want to do so by asking some questions about nonviolence. The first question, which will be the shorter part, is what is nonviolence? And then the second question is, does the Christian tradition have anything to say about it? Next week in part two, we're going to explore two more questions about nonviolence. But these two questions, what is nonviolence? And then the second, does the Christian tradition have anything to say about it? These two will get us through the episode today. So with that said, first question, what is nonviolence? And I start here because if we don't even have a word for nonviolence, it can be difficult to understand or even define what it is. And it is, by the way, somewhat difficult to define. Not only that, but often when we hear the word nonviolence, we think of pacifism. And while pacifism is one form of nonviolence, nonviolence is not necessarily pacifism. So I, I want to begin by defining some terms and, and offering uh, pictures of nonviolence. So first, pacifism, like nonviolence, is opposed to violence. However, pacifism is by nature passive. And, and this is why some consider it more to be more of a philosophy or a way of thinking, um, but it doesn't necessarily define a way of acting because it's passive, which means it does not act in the face of violence. By contrast, Nonviolence is active. It's not passive. Nonviolence is not just a way of thinking, but a way of taking action. It's a way of resisting violence, resisting oppression. So when you think about nonviolence, think, you know, things like sit-ins or strikes by a particular workforce or protests. It's Gandhi and his hunger strikes uh, in, the, in opposition to and in resistance of the British Empire. It is marching across the Edmund Pettus Bridge in Selma in the, in, in the long walk taken by civil rights leaders. It's Rosa Parks sitting in the front of the bus and refusing to go to the back. It's the Montgomery bus boycott. You see, none of these things are passive. None of these things are violent, but the, they're all action. They're all active resistance against oppression, against violence. Nonviolence is not sitting by and allowing violence or evil or oppression to proliferate and to grow. It is a way of acting that resists those things and does so in a subversive manner. Because the most powerful acts of nonviolence, they, they both subvert power structures and they have the power to expose evil, specifically the evil actions of violent people. And so Let's move on to the second question. I know I said that was going to be brief, but as a way of helping us understand what I'm talking about or what all of this means, let's consider together the second question. Does the Christian tradition have anything to say about nonviolence? Now, the quick response to that is, yes, it totally has a lot to say. The Christian tradition has endless things to say about nonviolence. But to respond to this question more fully, 
We're going to dive in deep here and consider together exactly what it has to say, beginning with Jesus and his teachings. Now, in the Gospel of Matthew, there's a group of teachings that uh, Jesus gives, traditionally referred to or called the Sermon on the Mount. And it's found in Matthew chapters 5 through 7. And in chapter 5, one of Jesus' teachings from the Sermon on the Mount that's fairly well known, and I would even say quoted quite often, is his command to turn the other cheek. Now, many people read this and believe that this is pacifism, that you're doing nothing in the face of violence. The whole quote, though, is if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. So it's understandable why many people would believe this is pacifism. Even Mark Kurlansky, who wrote an incredible book that's worth reading titled Nonviolence, says this command of Jesus is pacifism. However, another scholar named Walter Wink sheds incredible light on this teaching from Jesus in an article titled The Myth of Redemptive Violence. Now, the full context of this teaching about turning the other cheek, meaning the, 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 all the verses surrounding it, uh, are this. And I'm going to read from verses 38 to 42 of Matthew chapter 5. Jesus said, You have heard that it was said, eye for eye and tooth for tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. Give to the one who asks you and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. Now, there's a lot to unpack here for two reasons, uh, or two reasons that I'm bringing to it. One is, I think this is a great way to show more examples of nonviolence that we talked about in response to the first question. And second, uh, there's a lot to unpack so we can understand what the Christian tradition has to say about nonviolence. And, and so I'll just kind of walk through these verses and, and offer some observations about what Jesus is saying. Jesus begins by making a reference, eye for eye and tooth for tooth. He's quoting from Exodus chapter 21 and Leviticus chapter 24. Now, it's important to recognize that these laws were given to the ancient people of Israel to limit retaliation, not as a way of endorsing revenge. And this is important because how often do we hear eye for eye, tooth for tooth, as an excuse for revenge? These laws were given as a way of limiting the extent of one's vengeance that they were seeing, seeking. So think about it this way. When we seek revenge, it's rarely ever equal to the initial offense. It's often above and beyond the original offense. Somebody does something to you, and you respond over and above what they've done. Your response is not commensurate with the, with the offense. I think about a time when I was in third grade. Um, I was at a school picnic, and my sister, who's a year older than me, was in fourth grade, and I remember she got these white pants. <laughs> now, why anyone would wear white pants to a school picnic where you're going to be playing kickball and getting dirty, it's beyond me. But either way, um, she wore these white pants, and there was a kid that I, I just didn't like, and he was in her class. His name was Peter, and I don't know why he did this, but I remember seeing it. I remember it like it was yesterday. 
he took a glass of red Kool-Aid and threw it at my sister, and it went all over her white pants. Now, again, he probably did this because he liked her or was, thought he was funny, but I didn't like him. And when I saw him do this, I saw my sister crying, and I, I lost it. Like, <laughs> and so he had his back to me, and I sprinted toward him, and with all my momentum and weight, which was not very much because I was always like the skinny, scrawny, short little kid, but with all the force I could muster, I drilled him in the back with my shoulder. This is like a, a, a football player just destroying a defenseless receiver, uh, and he never saw it coming. And he stumbled forward and fell face first into a tree. And I was like, yes, I mean, victory. And you're listening going like, you had some issues, didn't you? Yes, and I still do. And it, of course, this is a terrible response. And it was revenge without even thinking, pure and simple. Now, I share that because if I had observed the eye for an eye principle, um, then what would have happened is Peter should have had his pants ruined. That, that's the bottom line. He should not have been shoved forcefully face first into the bark of an oak tree. But here's the thing. Jesus is saying, you've heard it said, equal revenge is okay. But I tell you, this is what he's saying, equal revenge is actually too much. In other words, if he's speaking to my third grade self, he's saying, hey, Michael, don't ruin Peter's pants, which uh, it's a really odd sentence now that I hear myself say it. Maybe that should be the title of this podcast on not ruining Peter's pants. Anyway, Jesus says, don't take an eye, don't take a tooth. Instead, turn the other cheek. Now, many people hear that as pacifism, but this is where Walter Wink comes in. He points out that Jesus says first, if anyone strikes you on your right cheek. So if someone were to do this, strike you on your right cheek, and you can imagine this uh, when it comes to how someone's facing you, if they were going to strike you on your right cheek, we would think, well, they would hit you with their left hand. But in that time, your left hand was unclean because it was the hand you used to clean yourself after going to the bathroom. And yes, that's really true. Which means if you were struck on the right cheek, someone would have struck you with the back of their right hand. And those listening to Jesus would have picked up on this because there were laws in Jesus's day against slapping somebody with the back of your hand. So when Jesus talks about the right cheek, he's referencing a backhand slap. And one of the laws that was on the books for the people of Israel was this, and I quote, he who slaps his fellow with the back of his hand must pay him 400 silver coins, for they are all children of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The law states, again, I'll read it. He who slaps his fellow with the back of his hand must pay him 400 silver coins, for they are all children of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Now you may hear this and think, well, what is being a child of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob have to do with this? Which is a great question. Because what this law is saying, the reason for this law is it's pointing toward the dignity of human beings. And it mentions this because in Jesus's day, in that culture, to slap someone with the back of your hand was denigrating. It was, be, it was belittling. It was a way of exerting your status and your power over and above them. It was a way of saying, you are not my equal, you are below me. And this is something, by the way, that would have been done maybe by a rich person to a poor person. 
something that would have been done to slaves, something that would have been done to a common citizen of Israel by a Roman soldier. Now, of course, Roman soldiers weren't obeying the Jewish law, but, but it was put on the books because it was a way of saying, you can't do this to somebody. And so Jesus says, if someone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also, which means the left cheek. And I know that's a huge insight. But again, think about like the, the physiology of the whole thing. To slap someone with the back of your hand on the left cheek means that you'd have to use your left hand. Now, again, this would not happen because the left hand's unclean. So if you're going to strike someone on the left cheek, you would have one of two choices. Slap them with the open hand, or open-handedly with your right hand, or punch them with your right hand. Now, here's where it gets interesting. Both of those options mean that the person doing the hitting would be in their violence, in hitting you, recognizing you as an equal. Because to slap someone with an open hand or to punch them, well, that's what you do with an, with an equal. Because a Roman soldier, for example, would never punch a citizen of Israel in the face because they are not his equal. So, so imagine the scene. You're called out by someone abusing their power. So whether it's someone who's rich or someone who fancies themselves as a religious elite or maybe you're a slave and this is a person coming who's angry with you or it's a Roman soldier and you're called out by this person. They're abusing their power. They grab you by the back of your collar. They spin you around and they unleash a slap with the back of their right hand across your face on your right cheek. You stumble back. You recognize what they're saying to you is you are not my equal. They belittled you. People are watching. You compose yourself. You stand upright. You straighten your shirt. And then you take a step toward that person and you turn your head. You turn to them your other cheek. You turn your head exposing to them your left cheek. What are you saying at that point? You're not just saying, I'm not going to do anything in the face of your violence. That's pacifism. What you are saying is, go ahead, hit me again. And if you do, you're going to have to use your open right hand or your fist. If you hit me again, do so, but know you're recognizing me as your equal. Imagine doing this to a Roman soldier, and there's a whole crowd around there. People would have been going like, oh, facial. I mean, like, you're asserting something. You're subverting the power balance. You're exposing the evil that this person has participated in. This is not passive. This is an action taken to subvert power and expose evil. And, and I mean, this is, this is genius, what Jesus is saying. Now, I'm not going to spend as much time on the next two, uh, but I do want to refer to them. Jesus talks about taking the shirt and the coat in the next uh, scenario, I'll say it that way. And this speaks, by the way, about loans and collateral, and it's a direct reference, actually, to Deuteronomy 24 that speaks about a coat or a cloak, which was your outer covering, and at night it was something that would use to keep you warm. And in Deuteronomy 24, it instructs the people of Israel, hey, if you take somebody's coat or cloak as a pledge, don't hold it from them overnight. Why? Because you don't want them to be cold at night. So Jesus now is saying, listen, if someone does, in fact, take your cloak and keep it, um, 
then give them your shirt, or more literally, give them your tunic as well, which basically is your undergarment that you would have under your cloak, which means Jesus is saying, give him your your underwear, toss him your tight whites. Uh, And Jesus says, if someone's going to take from you in an unethical manner, then give them everything. Give them all your clothing. Strip down naked. Now, in that culture, the shame of nakedness was on the one who saw the nakedness, which means those present in this courtroom scenario that Jesus cooks up would not be upset with you, but they would actually look at the one who caused your nakedness with disdain. So again, those present would look at the one taking the cloak and think to themselves, what are you doing? This is wrong. You can't do this. Do you see the subversion there? Do you see this is not pacifism? This is an act that's subverting the, the, the power structures. It's an act that is exposing the evil. The, the final scenario that Jesus says is this. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go two. Now, this has often been phrased as, you know, so-and-so really goes the extra mile, but that's not what Jesus is saying. Again, this is subversion. This is nonviolence, and here's why. There were laws on the books for Roman soldiers and for those under their thumb, for those who lived in countries occupied by Rome. And one of those things was about the Roman soldiers treating you like a pack animal. Now, I say that because the word that Jesus uses here about going one mile, it's actually a a word that um, is Persian in origin and refers to couriers who were working for the government who were allowed to use an animal or a person for the purpose of his um, civic duty or to carry out his civic duty. And this later came to be used in reference to a common practice of the Roman military. Because if you were a Roman soldier and you're marching down a Roman road and you're tired from walking in the heat of the day, there was a law that said you could force an animal or a person to carry your pack. And there are records, by the way, of soldiers passing through districts and forcing people to transport the loads they were carrying, whether it was their pack or their weapons or their water or food. But there were restrictions that were placed on this by the Roman government, and each legion had to gain certain permissions to do this from the Roman prefect. And what's interesting is, In all of the movement of the Roman military, Rome had roads that had clear mile markers on them. So the rule that Rome had and the rule that each prefect held over different regions or legions and the military was that forced transport of an animal or a human being could only go for one mile. So imagine you're in a field, you're working with your siblings and your, your father, and you hear a soldier yell, hey, you, and you turn around, and he's looking right at you, and he gives you the, like, come over here thing with his, you know, his hand, and he says, take my pack, drops this, like, 70-pound pack off his back, and he just starts walking. You have to pick it up. You have no choice. But what happens a mile down the road when he says, okay, drop the pack, and you go, no. I'm good for another mile. Now, remember, there were rules for the soldiers, and the Roman military was rather strict. And now you keep walking. What does he begin doing? He's saying, hey, take the pack off. You have to take, you can't go more than a mile. And you're like, no, I'm good, I'm good, I'm good. See, all of a sudden now, he's the one breaking the rules. He's the one who's on the hot seat. He's the one now 
who's asking you to do something. Why? Because you now have the power. Do you see the subversion in this? Do you see what happens when you say to somebody, no, 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 I'll keep going. You've gone from basically a pack animal to someone who now has this power. You're exposing what they're doing. These are actions that Jesus is talking about. These are not simple, passive, just, you know, be a nice guy. No, these are subversive actions. And these are both examples of nonviolence and Jesus is teaching toward that end. Jesus is espousing nonviolence. And here's why I say this. At the beginning of these three teachings about turning the other cheek, about giving the cloak and going the extra mile, Jesus says this, do not resist an evil person. And I would argue, as do many, this is the clearest instruction of nonviolence that Jesus gives because the word that Jesus uses here for resist is antistemi. Antistemi, it's a Greek word. And by the way, I was terrible at Greek in, um, in seminary. Hebrew, I did great. Greek, I hated it. But anyway, antistemi. And it means to resist violently or to revolt or to rebel or engage in insurrection. Um, it's to set yourself against the enemy in battle. It's a very specific word that Jesus uses here. So when he says, do not resist an evil person, he's talking about violence. And the majority of time that this word is used in Greek literature, it's used in reference to resistance in military encounters, and it refers to like a violent struggle. And Jesus's answer is set against the backdrop of the burning question of forcible resistance to Rome. Remember, these people that Jesus is speaking to are living in a land occupied by a global military superpower whose biggest weapon to keep people at bay was crucifixion. Rome was known for their military power. And so Jesus is saying, don't resist in the face of that. Don't resist violently. Don't be somebody who practices this insurrection with, with weapons. So we could say it this way. Jesus is saying, don't respond to evil with evil or violence with violence. When he's saying don't resist an evil person. Rather, then Jesus goes on, Subvert, expose, practice nonviolence. Oh, and here are some examples. Don't resist does not mean passively allow an evildoer to do whatever he or she wants. What it means is do not resist a forceful action with a similar forceful action. Do not resist violence with violence. Don't go eye for eye, tooth for tooth. Jesus here is forbidding responding to violent action with similar violent action. Now, in the Gospels, there's numerous other verses in which Jesus espouses a nonviolent ethic and gives clear teaching leading us away from violence. I mean, it's like when he talks about loving your enemies and praying for those who persecute you. It's when he is arrested and Peter cuts off the ear of the servant to the high priest and Jesus says, put the sword in its place. And some have said, that this command of Jesus was not just for Peter, but for everyone who would follow Jesus in the years, decades, centuries to come. When Jesus is arrested and he's standing before Pontius Pilate, he says this, my kingdom is not of this world. And the evidence he gives of that is, he continues, if it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest. In other words, he's saying, my kingdom, the rule and reign of God is not violent that's not 
what it's about. It's different than the kingdoms of this world that have violence as a way of keeping the peace, quote unquote. Jesus's clear teachings and instructions, by the way, about nonviolence were not lost on the early church. In fact, it was commonplace. It was commonplace in the early church to be nonviolent. I mean, consider Paul's letter to the church in Rome. If there was ever a church, by the way, that was persecuted and had enemies and had violence done to them, it was this group of Christians. They were intensely persecuted. They were rounded up and fed to wild animals in the Circus Maximus as the crowd cheered on. There were people that were spectators to their deaths. The Christians in Rome lived in hiding. They lived in uh, shrouded in secrecy. They were always in fear of what would happen if they were ever caught by Roman soldiers. And into this situation, Paul speaks these words. He says, Do not take revenge. Rather, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Now, when you hear evil and you hear enemy in that context, you're not going, huh, who is my enemy? You know exactly who it is. It's the Romans who want to put you in an arena to be shredded by an animal while the crowd cheers. So you know exactly who he's talking about. And I can't imagine being a part of this small little group of Christians and hearing the words for the first time, do not take revenge. If your enemy is hungry, feed him. Uh, How in the world, Paul, do you expect us to actually do this? The only part of the teaching that might like make sense is if you take them literally, like heaping burning coals on their heads, that would be great just to burn them. But here's the thing about that. Um, I worked as a server, by the way, for a lot of years in college. And yes, I am talking about coals still. But I worked as a server for a lot of years in college and uh, even after college for a little bit. And one of my managers in that stretch was a guy named Alan. And he was honestly, always had a smile on his face. Always like he would, one of those people who would almost like sing when he talked because he was always so happy. He was the most positive person I've ever met in my life. He was always had a smile on his face. He was always happy. He was always interested in people. And I remember one time, there was a table of guests who were particularly upset about something. And the reason I remember it is I was like one section over and one of the people at the table was like berating one of the other servers so loud that everybody in my section of the restaurant was looking over at the table at this guy who was yelling. And he's like veins popping out of his neck and he demands to speak with the manager who at that time was Alan. (laughs) So Alan goes out to speak with them And in minutes, this entire table and this guy who had the veins popping out of his neck and was red with anger, they were like totally fine. And so Alan walks back into the kitchen and he's just like, you know, kind of cruising and smiling. And he said out loud, you just got to kill him with kindness. (laughs) And so I know what he meant. And I also know what he did not mean. Because for some people, this can be nothing more than patronization. I mean, it's not really kindness. Um, It's this idea of like, you're just, you're being kind in a way that's just cynical and you're like digging the knife in a little bit deeper. 
And you know that you're doing this. And the guest, by the way, knows that you're doing this. And things just get, they get more irritated. So that's not this idea of kill them with kindness. When, when Alan said that in that moment, he meant it. And every time, by the way, I saw him speak with a customer who was upset. And there was a, there was a lot of customers who were upset because it was Red Lobster. And yes, I, <laughs> I just admitted to you that I worked at uh, the, the very high-end seafood restaurant, <laughs> Red Lobster, when I was there in college. Oh, man, I feel like I just shared a secret about my past life. But in some ways, I feel lighter, like I feel better, like I've just confessed something to you. Um, <laughs> but yeah, every time Alan uh, would go out at, uh, to, to a table that was upset, the people at the table would always end up like smiling and laughing, and they, like, it, they were just better. And this is precisely the meaning of heaping coals on their heads. It wasn't heap coals on their heads as a way of like, when you're nice to them, it will just bother them. Coals actually in the Jewish consciousness were a symbol of purification. There's a story uh, in the book of Isaiah, the, the Hebrew, in the Hebrew scriptures, I believe it's in chapter six. And uh, the, the prophet Isaiah talks about King Uzziah. And he's like, in the year that King Uzziah guy died, I saw the Lord high and lifted up. And then he describes this scene. He's like, there was angels that were around the throne of God and the, 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 the train of God's robe filled the temple. It's this ecstatic vision he has. And he says that the angels are around the throne and day and night, they never stop saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. They never stop saying this. And so Isaiah has this vision and he says, and then I cried out, woe to me, I am ruined for I am a man of unclean lips. And it's at that point that he says one of the angels took a coal in his hand and touched his mouth or touched his lips and says to him, see that this coal has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin is atoned for. He uses a coal to remove guilt and to atone for sin. So this idea of heaping coals that Paul talks about is not be so nice to them, it gets under their skin and irritates them. The idea is don't seek revenge. If they're hungry, give them something to eat. If they're thirsty, give them some water. And in doing so, you're heaping coals on them. You're doing something that actually could lead to their redemption, to their purification. If you care for the needs of people, Paul is saying, who intend to do you harm, you may actually be a part of their redemption, of their purification. You might be a part of removing their guilt. I mean, this is not passive. This is not just standing by and allowing your enemy to do whatever they want to do. No, this is actually a subversive act that has the power, Paul says, to potentially change the life of somebody else. This is active. This is subversive. This is nonviolence. And this way of thinking, by the way, was, like I said earlier, it was common among the earliest Christians. In the first three centuries, of Christianity, nonviolence was central to their way of life. This is no exaggeration. Now, according to Ron Sider, he, he talks about that no existing Christian text, so no text that we have that uh, from the first three centuries, which is before Constantine, he says, 
No existing Christian text is where it is found where it says military service is legitimate. In other words, in the first three centuries before Constantine made Christianity the religion of the empire, he says no military service is, is legitimate. You, in other words, you can't serve in the military. Why? Because it's violent. There are a ton of different um, essays or treatises that, that explicitly state killing for any reason is wrong among the early Christians in the first three centuries. Um, they state explicitly, Christians should not join the military. Uh, Jesus' teaching to love one's enemy is connected to the Christian ethic of being peaceful, of being those who are ignorant of war, meaning they don't even know how to fight and they wouldn't know how to use the weapons of a military. They're opposed to attacking other people. Um, one of the, the passages that he points out that figured uh, large in the first three centuries was the passage in Isaiah, and I believe it's Micah, about beating swords into plowshares and um, spears into pruning hooks. And on the question of the sword, every writer who mentions the subject in the first three centuries of Christianity takes the same exact position, uh, meaning don't pick it up. One early Christian writer um, says it this way, he says, when God forbids us to kill, he not only prohibits us from open violence, which is not even allowed by public laws, but he warns us against the commission of those things which are esteemed lawful among people. He's referring to the things that are lawful among people. He's referring to Rome, to the culture, to the violence that they participate in, and the violence, by the way, of the military, which was celebrated by Rome's. By Rome. So even more than condemning violence, the first Christians went beyond all of that. And they began to say, we need to bring peace, shalom, wholeness, the kingdom to bear. This is why Christians would care for abandoned babies. There are stories that in Ephesus, if you had a baby who was deformed or maybe apparently had some developmental disabilities, they would bring the babies to the trash dumps. And the early Christians in Ephesus, and by the way, this is not like hundreds of people. This is, we're talking less than 100, 30, 40, 50, 60 people. The early Christians in Ephesus would go to the trash dump and they would get really, really, really quiet and listen for the cries of abandoned children. And then they would go and find the kid and then they would raise this child who was deformed by Roman standards or who had developmental disabilities. They would raise this child as their own, which, by the way, is why when Paul says to the church in Ephesus, this just popped in my head, you are adopted sons and daughters, there's a power to what Paul is saying there. What he's saying is, you, like the children you go and listen for, like God stood on the trash dump and listened for your cry and brought you home as his child. Oh, that's so beautiful. I, I don't, that popped in my head. I had forgotten about that. Anyway, so the, <laughs> the first Christians... For them, nonviolence wasn't just passive. It was also saying, no, we need to seek the peace. So they cared for abandoned babies. They were known for visiting all people who were imprisoned. Um, they, they were known to care for the destitute, even those who weren't a part of their little community. They would care for the poor. They would forego meals to provide the burial for a family who was too poor to bury their own uh, mother or father or, or child. The message, by the way, the message in the first three centuries of Christian writings is overwhelmingly clear. Killing and violence for any reason is always 
wrong for people who follow Jesus. By the way, this is not just in Christian writings. Even the Roman historians who talked about early Christians showed that they withdrew from military service after learning about Jesus. And they did this because they pointed toward the cross as the ultimate revelation of nonviolence because they understood that the cross itself uh, was used by Rome as an instrument of torture and execution. And it was used by Rome as a propaganda tool. They would point to the crucified and say, this is what happens when you oppose us. But in the cross of Jesus, what they saw was that this, this constant looming threat was actually drained of its power in the resurrection. Because think about it. What happens when the state exerts its full power, when the state unleashes its greatest threat on you and you get up a few days later? I mean, imagine somebody comes up to you and they begin threatening you and then they just unload and punch you in the face as hard as they can and you topple to the ground and everyone's like, oh, and you stand back up and you look at them and say, is that all you got? And they punch you again and you stand up. Really? That's it? <laughs> that's, that's really all you have? After a while, people begin laughing at who? The person who's punching you, who can't keep you down. People begin looking at that person going, are you really going to do that? You can't keep doing this. What you've done is you subverted the power structure. That person's violence does not affect you, does not have the power to keep you down. And what's happened is you've exposed what they're doing. People begin laughing at them. People begin saying, what are you doing? This is the cross. Rome exerted and unleashed its fullest violent power, its greatest threat. And Jesus comes out the other side three days later in the resurrection. This is nonviolence. This is the powerlessness of the cross. He subverted the power structure. This is what the early Christians knew. And this is why, by the way, they practiced nonviolence. For them, they recognized, I can't see Jesus wielding a sword. And by the way, and we'll talk more about Constantine next week, but even for the early Christians after Constantine, there were still some who said, because of what I know to be true about Jesus, I can no longer fight. One uh, great story is a story of who's now called St. Martin. And St. Martin uh, was a son of a military officer, a well-known military officer, and he encountered Jesus, and he said, I can't fight anymore. So he uh, laid down his sword, and he was riding into a city in, the, in uh, basically modern-day Europe, and he saw a beggar at the gate who was shivering and freezing because it was winter. And St. Martin got off his horse, and he tore his robe in half, and he gave half of it to the beggar to keep him warm, and was uh, then called to account for saying, I'm not going to fight anymore. He was a deserter. He was an embarrassment to, to the Roman military. So he said to his commander, to show you I'm not a coward, as you're accusing me of being. Put me in the front lines tomorrow when we go to battle, and I will lead this group into battle, but I will not carry a sword. Which means, put me in the front lines. I'm going to get struck down. I'm going to get killed, but I'm going to go to my death knowing I cannot do this because of who I understand Jesus to be. And at the last minute, there was a treaty reached, and the battle didn't happen. We'll talk more about St. Martin uh, next week in what the order of St. Martin in the United States military now is. The irony couldn't be finer, by the way. There's an order of St. Martin, um, 
And it tells only part of the story of St. Martin. So see, that's like my hook to bring you back next week. That this is what happens when Christians in the early centuries encountered Jesus. Which, by the way, speaking of Jesus, <laughs> as we've been doing the whole time, um, I want to go back to the garden and the night that Jesus was arrested. And Peter cuts off this, the uh, ear of the servant of the high priest. We know that the name of the servant of the high priest was named Malchus. And he gets his ear cut off, and Jesus says to Peter, put the sword away. And I mentioned earlier, some say this command of Jesus was a command for all who would come to follow him. So we've asked two questions about nonviolence. What is nonviolence, and does the Christian tradition have to say anything about it? And I would say, let's ask a few more questions, especially around this scene in the garden when Jesus is arrested. If you were Peter and you had taken out your sword, and you cut the ear of Malchus off, and Jesus says, put the sword back in his place. And by the way, Jesus goes then and heals the ear of Malchus. If you were Peter in that moment, how would you feel? If you were Peter, how would you feel? I mean, Jesus, don't don't you know what they're going to do to you? Don't you know why they're here? Don't you know who Malchus works for? If you were Peter, how would you feel? Uh, uh, Malchus is one of the bad guys. Doesn't he deserve this? If you were Malchus, how would you feel? How long would you have remembered that night? Would you wonder, why would Jesus protect me? Why would Jesus restore me? Because keep in mind, if your ear is cut off, you can no longer serve in the temple. Some people think that Peter like swung at Malchus and like missed and, you know, kind of like the fight club scene, like, ow, you cut me in the ear. No, Peter was deforming the servant of the high priest because according to Jewish law, that meant he couldn't serve in the temple anymore. Peter is removing him from his community and his job and everything else. Jesus restores him so he can go back to the life that he has. What? If you're Malchus, would you be like, why did Jesus do that? Would you have spent time wondering who Jesus was? I mean, no doubt you heard about who he was from your boss, the high priest. You're there to arrest him after all. But all of a sudden, somehow, what Jesus said to Peter and what Jesus did for you doesn't comport with who you've learned or believed Jesus to be. Would you have spent any time wondering who Jesus was or what Jesus was about? Would you, as Malchus, wonder, like, who is this group of people that, that's practicing the art of nonviolence. Why didn't Jesus fight back? Even all the way to the cross when he was nailed there, why is he up on that cross pronouncing forgiveness? You see, this one action of Jesus, this one command to Peter, has the power to do something, to do something to us, to do something in us, that violence doesn't have the same power to do. If they had come to arrest Jesus and Peter cuts off the ear and a scuffle breaks out and three or four people die and people disappear into the night, that's the same story told all the time. I don't even know that we would know it. I'm not sure it would even have been written down. It would have been uneventful because it's another act of violence filled in a violence world. Instead, Jesus has put the sword in your place. He restores the ear. And here we are 2,000 years later still talking about it. What went through Peter's mind? What went through the mind of Malchus? And we ask those questions because nonviolence has the power to do something that violence 
doesn't. Now, let's take that night in the garden even maybe a level deeper or a little bit further. It it may help to remember Jesus had just finished praying, uh, and it was a time of agonizing prayer, we're told. This is where he says to his disciples, keep watch. He goes, falls down, and says, like, God, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. In other words, I don't want to be crucified. And if there's any other way to, for me to do something else or for me to get out of it, make it happen. But then he re- has this refrain, but not my will, but your will be done. Maybe we can phrase it a little bit more uh, in current parlance. But not what I want. I'm up for whatever you have in mind. If this is what you want me to do, I'll do it. Even though I've told you I'm not sure I want to. Which means what Jesus does is he surrenders. And he comes to the place where what he wanted in that moment was the same longing that exists in the heart of God. Namely, what Jesus wants is the restoration of all things. And I point this out. Because maybe this is what fueled the early church. Maybe what fueled their nonviolence was that they wanted the same thing Jesus wanted. Maybe what they wanted was the restoration of all things. Maybe another question is, what is it that we want? What is it that we want? And I'll say this. I know that I'm at my worst when I pursue what I want first and foremost. At that point, like, don't mess with me. Don't get in my way. Don't disagree with me. That's when I'm like at my worst and I will do anything to win the argument. I will do anything to get my way. I will, I will behave in ways that are absolutely 100% verifiably wrong when I'm at my worst because I'm pursuing what I want to hell with everybody else. This is obviously not the heart of Jesus. I mean, he stands there in the midst of this chaos, torches and swords and spears and nighttime and being betrayed by by one of his disciples. He stands there in the midst of this and his heart is so knit together with God's heart that there is a longing in his heart, even in that moment, for God's love to be real and to be present and to be tangible. Conservative scholar, and so I say conservative because this is important. A conservative scholar uh, talks about this whole perspective in the garden and what it does to us. He says this. His name is Dale Bruner. He says some Christians think armed action against Jesus's enemies is more effective for God's will and for people's liberation than are those quote pious prayers that Jesus prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane. Some Christians, some Christians think armed action against Jesus' enemies is more effective for God's will and for people's liberation than are those pious Gethsemane prayers. What he's saying is the Gethsemane prayers is what enables you to practice nonviolence. To say, not my will, but your will be done. I mean, that will preach for sure. <laughs> Jesus claimed, by the way, he had an army at his disposal. This is in the story of him getting arrested. He's like, I have an army at my disposal. And they would come down and they would whoop you. I mean, they would wipe the floor with you. But that's not what he chose to do. Rather, his heart was aligned with the heart of God. And when he saw his enemy wounded, he showed the kind of restoration God is interested in. The kind of restoration that bombs and guns and missiles and punches and 
angry posts on Facebook. Like they, they just can't bring that kind of restoration about. It, it turns out what we see in Jesus and what the Christians believe is that grace and peace and love and nonviolence have the power to dull the sharpest sword. But let's take another step in this story. And this is where we'll conclude. There's some conjecture about how do we know the name of the servant Malchus? And some are like, well, he was just like a popular figure in Jerusalem. I mean, he was the servant to the high priest. Everyone would have known who he was. No, because he actually didn't occupy a position of real influence or power. He was, he was like Dwight Schrute, the, <laughs> the assistant to the manager. But others believe uh, he, he wouldn't have been popular. And some have suggested, suggested and it is possible, that the name Malchus was known to the gospel writers because Malchus eventually joined the group of Jesus followers. <laughs> Which at one level, how awkward would that have been early on? Like every time, <laughs> every time he shows up in a room and Peter's there, Peter's like, hey, hey man, and I'm super sorry. And Malchus is like, Peter, you don't need to keep apologizing. The ear's fine. It's better than it ever was. Uh, like how awkward would that have been? But one, one writer raise the question, is it possible that Malchus became a brother? Is it possible that Malchus became a brother because of the actions that, he, that, that happened in the garden that night? And it's possible, as they said, that at some point after Jesus' arrest, he became a brother to those in the early church. And, and I read that and I thought, yeah, but for Jesus, that night in the garden... Malchus was already a brother. And maybe this is the vision that, that changed uh, the early church, that he was already a brother. I mean, think about this. Several years ago, a family uh, that I know experienced an unbelievably horrific tragedy. There was, it was one night, it was really late, it was near midnight, and this guy that I know was alone at home, and his elderly mother, who wasn't well, was also in the house. And he heard glass break downstairs, and then he heard a bang, like it just he said it was like a cannon as the door was kicked in. So, of course, his blood starts pumping. He runs downstairs, and he sees this guy in his kitchen. And so they, like, start fighting, grappling. It's dark. He grabs a knife, stabs the attacker. And the attacker's like wound, really badly wounded. And this guy stands up and stumbles around in the darkness, searches for the light in his kitchen. And he turns on the light and turns back toward this guy who's broken into his house. And it was his brother, like his biological brother, who had gotten incredibly drunk and went over to his brother's house, this guy that I know, and uh, broke in. And this guy turns on the light and on the floor, dying from a stab wound, is his brother. True story. And the brother ended up dying from his wounds. And so you hear that story. What makes it horrific is that it's his brother. Like if it was just some guy who was bent on robbing a house or doing something terrible to people in there, he'd be like, well, I mean, at least he saved his grandma or his mom and himself. It was his brother. Even if it was just a drunk guy who stumbled in like an idiot, you'd be like, wow, that guy was, that was unfortunate. And of course, we might be concerned with this guy who stabbed him, but like, it's his brother. It makes the story different, doesn't it? And I wonder... 
What if we looked at all people and said, this is my brother. This is my sister. This is my sibling. Maybe this is the vision that was given to the early church from the heart of Jesus. And the heart of Jesus is a reflection of the heart of God. This is my brother. This is my sister. This is my sibling. Maybe this is what allowed them to be people, as Roman historians wrote, who would feed the enemy, who loved their enemy, who gave water to their enemy, who would forego meals to to help the poor bury their dead, who always, always, always in the first three centuries said, no, any kind of violence is wrong. Maybe it was this vision, this sibling vision, maybe we should call it, that allowed them to pray for those who persecuted them, to name all forms of killing as wrong. Maybe it was this vision that led them toward nonviolence. And my hope is that it's this vision of seeing people as our brother, as our sister, as our sibling, that this would be true of all of us. And so may you, my friends, have the eyes to see that all people, in all places, in all contexts, in all circumstances, they are your brothers, they are your sisters, they are your siblings. And may that lead you to bless, to love, to pray, to want redemption, to refrain from violence toward them. May that lead you to the subversive practice of nonviolence in the hope that you will shovel heaping coals upon their heads. And with that, we will be back next week to explore this idea of nonviolence further with two more questions. But until then, as always, much love and peace be with you.